0: As he stands in victory, since curse has lost its claim on me, I think, is what we just sang. Something like it. Um, Amen. Praise God. The victory of Christ is what gives us us confidence that we can declare victory over sin. Uh, Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Lord, it is with great hope and confidence that we turn to you, knowing that if Christ's death accomplished our rebirth and sealed our adoption and our inheritance in a coming kingdom, then Christ's work and the Spirit's power is enough to declare victory over sin. Give us eyes to see that this morning. Open our eyes. Give us ears to hear. Soften our hearts that we can understand this passage and understand your call and and do it by the power of Christ, and by the work of the Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, good morning. Hi, guys. How's everybody? Um, Good. Hope you feel the same way on the other side. Turn with me to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, we're going to be in verse 29, 27 through 30. I'm sorry, 27 through 30. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Awesome. Awesome. Today we're going to be reading Jesus' words about lust. We're going to be reading Jesus' words about lust. Now, I can think of few more important topics. I can think of few more pressing needs than to see what Jesus has to say about lust in our hearts. And for me, this is personal. This sin... What we're going to talk about today, this sin, lust, ruined my childhood and it split my family in half and it haunted my adolescence and this sin characterizes our culture and this sin right now is torturing some of my brothers and sisters in Christ We need a beacon of hope. We need freedom from lust. And when I say we, I mean you, and I mean me, and I mean this church, and I I mean this culture. We have created a harbor in many ways that makes us feel like it's okay to engage in what Christ says is damning. And that's not okay. And my hope and my confidence, because of the work of Christ, that's already been on display in our church. My hope is that we can see ourselves. You and me and this church, at least, can see ourselves on the other side of lust there is freedom in christ you are sitting in a room right now with dozens who have declared victory over lust by the power of jesus and through radical obedience to jesus so here's my call to you this morning before we even read christ's words listen and be free Listen and be free. So let's read. Pick it up in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay. I want to do three things this morning, all right? We're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about what Jesus is saying here, all right? Just deal with the words themselves, all right? And then we're going to take a step back, and we're going to try and identify what Jesus' words imply about, about the law, and about our hearts, and about our minds, and about our relationships, And then, finally, we're going to put those two things together and we're going to try and identify what Jesus wants us to do about this, about lust. Okay, everybody take a breath. I have to simultaneously communicate this morning the gravity of sexual desire and how it has infected our culture. And now it has ruined families. But I also want to champion the hope you have in Jesus. I'm trying to hold those two things up at the same time. I think the best way to do that is to is to is, is to deal with what Jesus is saying. So, OK, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. This is yet another time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is quoting the law. Right. Um, and, and lest we assume, I want to go ahead and define what does adultery mean? I think, honestly, I think that most people's definition of adultery is too limited. So I'm going to give you what I think is the broadest and simplest definition of adultery. Adultery is sexual acts outside of marriage. Okay? From the outset of creation, God has created a framework, boundary lines, a window, a relationship within which sexual acts are not only appropriate, but worship, okay? And what we have done, just like every other way we've twisted creation, what we have done is we have broken the boundary lines and we have trespassed the boundary lines And everything that is sexual outside of those boundary lines, that's adultery. And so that we're not confused, I don't just mean physical actions that are gratifying. When I say sexual acts, I'm referring to what begins as flirting and every step in between to what ends in the inevitable collapse of families. Okay, is that clear enough for everyone? All right. And Jesus says, the law forbids adultery. And nobody in his audience was surprised. In fact, I'm going to try and voice to you what I think his audience is saying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're not adulterers. We don't even tolerate adulterers. I've never had sex with a woman that's not my wife. Boy, oh boy, look at how holy I am. That's what His audience is thinking, we have known the law from the beginning and we've been following it. And you want to know how we've been following it? Look, look at my fidelity. I've never acted in this way. And then Jesus says, now, hang on. Now, hang on. I'm not finished. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his So, Jesus says, Merely that you have not acted upon the lust in your heart does not free you from the consequences of the sin of adultery. He says, The lust is the problem. All right? Unless we assume that you know what this means, I want to give you a simple and broad enough definition of lust. sexual thoughts outside of marriage. Now, I wrestled with how to couch this definition such that it was broad enough. It's hard to be broad enough. And in the same way that adultery refers to what begins as flirtation and what ends in actions that ruin families, lust begins with that second glance and it ends with imagined scenarios. Okay, do you you see what I'm saying? There's a very clear parallel in the scriptures between adultery and lust because adultery is lust and lust is adultery. Do you see what I'm saying? All right. One lives external and one lives internal. Okay. Jesus says, That imagined adultery is adultery. Now this, for his audience, is troubling and groundbreaking and disturbing and relatively new. Okay? He says sexual thoughts outside of the confines of marriage, just like sexual acts outside of the confines of marriage, are damning. They're damning. What was the penalty? Anybody want to just shout out? What was the penalty for adultery in the law? Yeah. Death. You, you'd tell a bunch of Jews who've been reading the law their whole lives that, that the thing that has been going on in their minds since they were like 12 has earned the penalty of death before God? That is life-altering news. That is earth-shattering If this is the case, I'm sure they're thinking, if this is the case, if what's going on in my mind is, is building God's wrath towards me, I got to do everything I can to crush that thing, this adulterous imagination of mine. I got to do everything I can to, to, to stop that thing from happening, all right? You must combat your adulterous imagination at all costs. That's the natural, inevitable conclusion to adulterous thoughts, sexual thoughts, are earning the wrath of God and the death penalty, which is hell. Okay? Okay. And you're thinking, oh no, what do I do? And that's the logic of this passage. You following me? Christ says, not just adultery, your adulterous imagination. And then everybody goes, oh no! he says, here's what to do. Here's what you need to do. And then we stumble upon some of the most controversial passages, verses in the Bible. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, before we talk about what these words mean, I want to talk about what they don't mean. All right? there's a bad way to read these words and it's out there and you're going to find it if you Google. All right, I'm going to voice that inappropriate approach right now. We know, because we're Christians and because we've read the Bible, we know that the true cause of your sin is not your hand and it's not your eye. So this was just a clever way for Jesus to say, you need to deal with the real problem. You need to cut out the real problem, which is your adulterous heart. And never fear, Christ is offering that. Christ is offering you a new new heart. So so you don't have to be afraid anymore because what he's really saying is, Come to me and I will replace your, your adulterous heart with a new heart. And there there really needs not be any cutting off of anything. That's not the point. That interpretation is out there. Let me tell you why it doesn't work. He is speaking to his disciples. He is speaking to his disciples. When Matthew's writing this, guess who he's sending it to? The church. And he's, he's made a point to say, Jesus turned away from the crowds and he, and he looked at his Disciples, And the assumption is that as Jesus commissions his disciples to act in certain ways, he's going to equip them in the ways they need to act. And then they will be able to be as righteous as he's calling them to be. So what you do when you bring that interpretation to this passage is you flip the passage upside down. You point it in the wrong direction and you lose all the force of this passage. The point of this passage is you must be willing to violently cut off even good things in your fight against lust. What do I mean, even good things? Who crafted the eye? God. Who's telling people to cut out their eye? God. Right? There's no one in the universe who understands the beautiful intricacies of the human eye better than Jesus. Nobody. And he says, it is worth losing that and being half blind for you to fight your sin. In other words, you're better off limping half blind and free than temporarily pleased and destined for eternal hell. Now, that's what he's saying. He's saying you need to do whatever you need to do to combat lust in your heart. It's going to mean cutting off even good things, even great things. But if that's what it takes, the kingdom is better. Life is better than death. And, and if staying alive means losing your limb, stay alive. Anybody would make that choice. I remember, uh, I think it was like 20 years ago, 15 years ago, something like that, uh, there was a climber in the mountains, in the, in the Rockies, and uh, he was doing this pioneer venture climbing and, and a boulder fell on his arm. And he couldn't move, and he was alone, and he had a pocket knife. So look, over the course of a day and a half, he cut off his own arm, and he lived. What's funny is, he's on Letterman, like, the next year, and, and they're just talking about this, and he's like, uh, Letterman's like, how do, you, how do you make a decision like that? The answer is, it's simple. It's simple to me. I'm alive. I'd otherwise be dead. And then he holds up his arm and he goes, and look at this, and he takes his mug and it turns a full 360 degrees because he's got this like mechanical arm now. That's totally beside the point, but I think it's funny. Um, okay. So that's what Jesus is saying. I want to talk about what he's implying. What is Jesus implying? first, broadest, and perhaps most important. Jesus traces the action to the imagination, and he traces the imagination to the heart. Okay? Jesus traces the, ima- the action, in this case adultery, to the imagination, in this case lust, and he traces the lust to the heart's corrupt and sinful desires, right? Action, imagination, heart. That's how he's reading this one commandment in the law. And that's the way you should be reading every commandment in the law. Jesus is not concerned with externals, right? If he was, then one significant portion of the minor prophets would not exist because there was a significant portion of Israel's history where they're doing everything right on the outside, right? They're making sacrifices. They're worshiping. they're, They're tithing the way they should. They're following the law. And Christ says, stop it. God says, stop it. I see your ugly heart, right? It's not merely externals that matter. And so when we see the law saying, fix this external issue like lying, It doesn't matter if you just start saying true things, if behind those true things is an imagination crafting scenarios where you can say one thing and not another so you can get someone to believe. See what I'm see where I'm going. Like you can be just as deceptive with a with a manipulative imagination as if you were telling outright lies and Christ traces this prohibition to be deceptive to your Corrupt imagination and then he follows it all the way, all the way to your heart that rejects what is true and embraces what is false. This is Christ's way to read the law and this ought to be your way to read the law. I think that's the first implication of this passage. Second, and this is heavy, You will be judged according to the content of your imagination. Think about those words. And then think about what you think about. Because Christ is not strictly concerned with externals, he's concerned about the environment of your mind. Okay? He's concerned about the environment of your imagination and the sin that willfully takes place there. All the longings that, that you foster there. You're culpable for those things. Those things earn God's wrath. Look, you can could, you could be a perfectly kind person To everyone in your circle. And if in your heart is anger and wrath and bitterness and malice. That is earning you hell. That is earning you wrath. Now we're going to get to the good news. (laughs) The reason I'm pushing here. Because a lot of us have really clean exteriors. A lot of us are not doing the most explicit manifestation of sin, but we're fostering an environment of sin in our minds. That is not an arena immune to God's attention, and it's not an arena immune to God's judgments. So, you who have been cleansed by Christ, you who, who, who wear Christ's righteousness, you who have confidence before the throne of grace, wearing no more judgment, you do not need to be approaching that throne of grace feeling okay about a whole environment of sin that exists strictly in your imagination. Just like if you were to come before God broken because you you got very upset and you hit your wife. You should be going before God broken when you find yourself very upset and imagine hitting your wife. Do you see what I'm saying? That is sinful. And it's just as sinful on the inside as it is on the outside. Now we need to adapt our awareness of sin and our conviction about sin To this paradigm. And if you do it. It will change your life. And you'll see victory in ways that you couldn't even imagine. Okay. That's the second, I think, implication of this passage. The third. Yes. Your sinful heart is the problem. Okay. Why why would I do that? Why would I? Why would I cut off good things when I know really my heart's the problem? You're right. Your heart's the problem. And you're going to be fighting on that front for a long time. But radical actions can starve your sinful heart's addiction, weaken your sinful heart's resolve, and foster opportunities to shift your heart's affections from the world to the kingdom. We don't take radical actions As an end, we we make radical decisions as a means to the end, which is a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's our vision. That's our hope. We make radical steps to cut off any provision for our flesh so as to create an opportunity to shift our heart's attention from the world to our king. Does that make sense? Okay, finally, not finally, there are two more implications. If you're not willing, this is, this is a big deal. And I don't want you to just say, no, I'm willing, theoretically. I want you to think back to times where it might have been good for you to get rid of a thing and you didn't do it, then I want you to think hard about that decision, right? If you're not willing to lose even good things, and what I mean is to make life-changing, momentum-interrupting, relationship-ending, job-compromising decisions in your fight against sin, you're destined for hell. Because the only people who can call themselves Christ followers are the ones who are willing to lay down everything to follow him. Do you understand? I can't highlight this enough. Your call to follow Christ means dying to yourself. And sometimes that looks like making very hard decisions. Now, when you're at the moment where you have to choose whether or not to make that hard decision, that, that's when you begin to evaluate whether or not you're in Christ. If you're unwilling to give up a good thing, to see yourself made into the image of Christ. That's, that's an answer that you need to think hard about. And you, you need to repent. And you need to come and plead with Jesus for a new heart. What I'm not saying is if you find yourself very hesitant. And it takes you weeks to make that decision. But finally, after, after prayer, after pleading with the Lord for another way. Finally, you submit to his will. I'm not talking about that situation. That is Christ following right there. You can see Christ do it, by the way. Please, if this cup can pass away from me, right? If there's another way, but not my will, your will. That's what Christ following looks like. Thanks, Aaron, for bringing that to my attention this morning. Okay, and a violent, life-altering fight against lust is strong evidence of hope for a better kingdom. We have this conversation one-on-one all the time. I can't tell you how many times somebody's come to me and said, I keep fighting. I keep fighting and I keep failing and I keep making radical decisions and it doesn't seem to matter because I'm finding myself in sin. I'm finding my heart wanting things that I'm not allowed to have and sometimes I fail and does this mean I'm not in Christ? No. It does not. It's really strong evidence that you are in Christ. Because you're fighting. It's the fights that we look for as pastors. You want to pull back the curtain, feeling concerned about sin in your life and wondering whether or not you're a believer? You know what we're going to look for? The fight. Are you making war against your sin? Are you doing it? Because sometimes that war takes seasons. We might be right in the midst of the season. We're reading The Hobbit right now. We'll actually be talking about The Hobbit Next Saturday, if you want to join us at the church, but we're reading The Hobbit right now as a family. And there's this moment in the story where Bilbo climbed They're in they're in Mirkwood and they've been there for 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 a week or so. And they've run out of food and they're they're terrified that the forest is never going to end. And so they send Bilbo up to a to a tree to pop his head out and to see if he can see the end of the forest. And he doesn't know that he's in a valley. So he looks around and there's no end in sight. But the author says, but they were almost there. You may be that guy. You may be Bilbo. <laughs> you, you may be looking and seeing no end in sight, surrounded by trees and saying, well, does this mean I'm not a believer? And You just keep fighting. You just keep fighting. And that is evidence of hope for you. Don't despair as long as you're fighting. It's when you give up, that's when you should despair. What does Paul say? He says, I don't see many of you fighting to the point of shedding blood. That's a lot of fight. But the fight itself, that's evidence for hope. Okay. All right, so that's the passage what it says, and I think what it implies. And I want to speak briefly about what we can do about it. What can we do about it? All right? I can think of a number of answers to this question. However, I'm restraining my answers to this question to this passage. There are many passages in the scripture with a vision of purity setting their attention on lust and adulterous hearts and adulterous uh, inclinations and covetous minds and hearts. I'm not dealing with those. There are good books that deal with those. Uh, And we have some back there and we can recommend some. But I'm dealing strictly with this passage, okay? Here are some ways that we can Follow Christ's radical call to obedience. All right? First, consciously decide to reject our culture's definition of normal and appropriate. Consciously decide to reject our culture's definition of normal and appropriate. Here's what that means it's normal. To have a television. It is normal to have an iPhone. It is normal to have a computer in an office behind a closed door. It is normal to read book series that everybody's talking about. I can't tell you how many times I was told It's normal to watch Game of Thrones. It's normal to watch X series, even though you're going to have to stumble across a half dozen sex scenes. The world is eager to offer a definition of normal that fosters your disobedience to Christ. See what I'm saying? Now, some of the things that I just mentioned, I would call those bad things. Here's, here's You want to make some easy decisions? Cut out all the bad things right now. Right? If you're into a series and, and, and there's a whole bunch of sex in that series, this is not a hard decision. It's, it's, this is one of the easiest decisions. And there's a whole lot of complicated decisions. Just don't watch it anymore, guys. Look, if you want good stories, uh, go ask Brian Walker. He'll tell you like 50 good stories you want, a, you want a good book. There are 50 readers in our church that can tell you good books or send you a good movie series um, to get your attention off of the one that's causing the whole world to stumble into lust. Just don't be a part of that. That's an easy decision. All right? So, like some things I just talked about were, were bad things, but a lot of the things I just mentioned were good things. You know what we do with our iPhones? We, we talk to missionaries. We send gifts to people in need. We speak the gospel into dark situations by way of, of social media. We And you can just keep going. There are a lot of good things you can do with an iPhone. That is a good thing. And the world says everybody should have... Everybody should have one. I, so let me give you a, a little bit of a history. Um, <laughs> I was talking with a, uh, a member of the church about uh, um, addiction, pornography. And I said what I say on a regular basis, which is get rid of all your screens. Just get, just get rid of them, like TV, computer. If you need to use a computer. They have them at the library, um. And get a dumb phone, and the response was, and it's not unique to this person. It was, I've been I've been told this fifty times. Um, how do you do life here without a smartphone? How do How do I do life without an iPhone? Um. Well, it's harder. I was. I just went on a conference trip, and I, you couldn't. Park in that city without without a smartphone, which is crazy, by the way. Um, it's harder, but I bet you it's not as hard as doing life without a right hand. See what I'm saying? I bet I bet you it's it's less complicated than doing life without a right eye. Okay. So yes, it's hard. It's not about it not being hard. It's about whether or not. It's harder than eternity in hell. And probably the answer is it's not. And that was, that was an understatement if you don't know much about hell. It is a conscious effort to reflect on what the world is saying is okay and then to bring the Bible to it and to bring your wise brothers and sisters to it and to ask, maybe it's okay for them, maybe they're saying it's okay, but is it okay for me? All right? We we can't just make assumptions about what's okay for us. That's dangerous territory. All right, I beat that horse. Second. Dwell on the scriptures, pray and meditate and fast, find helpful resources, rally your com- community, shift your vocabulary and reconsider your patterns until you feel the fire of hell every time you feel the lure of lust. I think half the problem with lust is that we don't take it seriously. We don't think it's really honestly that huge of a deal. Look, if you're willing to reflect in, in in sheer unbelief on an individual's decision to smoke crack, but you're not willing to reflect with sheer unbelief on an individual's willingness to look a second time and to just think about the shapes, then you haven't thought carefully about sin. We need to see all these secret sins as damnable. We need to. But it's hard. You have to work for it. It's not enough just to say, oh yeah, you're right, you know, you're right, Uh, lust is... Is, is as damnable as, as adultery. Um, it's another thing to reflect and absorb and pray and meditate and fast and, and, and gather people around to say, I want to change the way I think about things. You can, by, by the work of Christ's people, and the might of Christ's Spirit sent to you, you can shift your entire worldview to that of the Bible. And when you do that, you will find the things that are reprehensible, reprehensible, but it takes time. You're, you're, as, as we walk away, because of the grace of Christ who saved us from death, as we walk away slowly from the worlds we grew up in, and we, we, we begin to adapt ourselves to the coming kingdom. That's what we call sanctification. We, we, as we walk away from the world and we, we begin to ready ourselves for the kingdom, you're going to have to realize that the way you think about things is not okay. And there's some things you're comfortable with that you should not be comfortable with. This is how to get rid of that. It's, it's, a, it's a labor that starts in personal discipleship, that shifts to your community. It involves not just reading of the scriptures, but reading good books that reflect the worldview of the scriptures. It is a wholehearted effort to shift your mind and to see lust for what it is. But you're not going to waste any time on that road. Okay. Okay. Three. Three. Watch your heart. I almost wrote, listen to your heart, but there's just so many bad songs. You know? (laughs) Watch your heart. Um, And here's what I mean. I think it is common to the human experience, which is a a really abstract way to say that I have encountered this personally. (laughs) Um, You could be just doing life. Just... Living faithfully, just loving people, just going to have a good time with some buddies, just having been recommended a great show, and, and you know, you and your, your, your wife need some time off. And this is going to be great. Date night is all figured out. And you press play. And I think you can hear it like I can hear it because I think the Spirit's given us ears to hear it. There will be moments when you find your heart which is still battling inappropriate desires. You find your heart going, hmm, interesting. That's when you flee. That's when you run. Look, it will not be discouraging to the believers in the room if you say, I can't, guys. I can't do this. I, I can't afford making even the slightest provision for my flesh. Right? And this can happen anywhere. It can happen, certainly, it can happen on Netflix. But it can happen with the books you read. It can happen with the music you listen to. We have told people in the past... Who have jobs that facilitate environments that are a stumbling block to quit your job and go find another one. All right? There, there are no decisions too radical to preserve your walk towards the kingdom. Okay? All right. Fourth, Walk closely with a few members of this church. Tell them everything and keep telling them everything. The light does a lot for the destruction of sin. Bringing things in the light, dialoguing with mature believers who, who know you and who know your inclinations and who are aware of what situations might cause a, a, a situation for you. Right? Those people will help. Defeating sin is not a work of isolation. You can't really declare victory over sin alone. First evidence of that is you needed Jesus to do it. Second evidence of that is basically the entire New Testament that says, don't claim to follow Christ alone. You need to be doing it with a whole bunch of other people. All right? All right. The way to do this is to find people who you trust and people who are mature and make them aware. Make them aware. Now, to govern this call, I want to. I want to go ahead and recommend um, it probably because of the nature of your struggle. If this is your struggle, it probably needs to be uh, uh, people of the same gender. Um, also, when you're telling them everything. What I mean by everything is vague, broad descriptions of situations, broad descriptions of what scenarios might create stumbling blocks for you, but do not fuel the sin of another person by giving them details they don't need to hear. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Um, and then fifth This is the hard one. Until you're free, and you know, I think, right now, I think you know right now whether or not you're free from this sinful desire. Until you're free, cut off anything and everything that might become a platform for stirring your lust. Ask your group to help you make these decisions. Once you've gathered a group of people around and you've told them what's going on, your life's an open book. You say, what do I need to cut out? What limbs do I need to cut off? Now notice, I'm taking these, 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 these eye and hand as, as a picture of radical measures and not actually the physical separation of body parts. Uh, I have really good reason to do so, and namely uh, almost nobody in the in the in the Christian tradition has ever gone that way of interpretation. Very few people um, there are there a are few people, but very few people would say uh, that what Christ meant was you need to actually physically cut off your hand. I think what Christ meant was that you need to make radical decisions to cut off good things, and this looks like Getting rid of your computer. If you can't do your job without your computer and your, and your boss won't let you load software on your compu- computer that'll keep you from looking at stuff, quit that job. God gives you everything you need for life and godliness. And even if that's a season of poverty, is that less convenient than cutting off your hand? No. No. And it's certainly less painful than an attorney in hell. All right, so I'm going to give you a few examples. I mentioned the computer. Um, If if you don't need a computer and you're in this situation, get rid of it. Easy decision. If you don't need it and, and like, if your argument for keeping your phone is that it has your mail on it and you need to check your mail and, and also you have a computer, that's just bad logic. Like... Okay, let's just make some hard decisions here. But uh, it's easy enough if your job doesn't require you to have a computer and, and getting rid of your computer might, might cut off provision to your flesh, do it right now. Uh, we, we could start a bonfire in the parking lot for computers. That's a great idea. I have so many great ideas from the pulpit, like getting tattoos. Found out after I told you all to get a tattoo on your arm that last week, Brett was telling people not to get tattoos, so... Um, so, yeah, just take everything with a grain of salt. Um, so, your phone. All right, let me tell you something about phones. Everybody uses phones for everything now. And so it's very easy to be convinced that phones are necessary. Um, I mentioned that story uh, about um, a member of this church who said, I can't get rid of my phone. So what we did was... Tara and I just made the decision to shift away from, uh, from a smartphone for me for a couple months. I just used a thumb phone for a couple months. You know what was great about that? I started looking at people again. <laughs> I started listening when they were talking. Um, there are so many perks to getting rid of the constant feed of media and entertainment that is your iPhone that it's almost worth doing even if... Even if uh, Uh, You need it. (laughs) Um, If you have the time and the interest, I will walk you through how to do it so that you can still maintain your job. I've had to work through that myself. Um, I have a dumb phone in my pocket right now. Or somewhere. I left it somewhere. So hopefully I have a dumb phone by the time I find it. Um, There are ways. If you lack the resources, there are resources. Help us help you, okay? Uh, Television, you're going to be hard-pressed to convince me you need it, and if you're fighting this battle, television is a front that, even if you're not aware of, is feeding. It's just feeding your lust. There's so much on television that's garbage. For a season, at least, get rid of it, Uh, And there are also perks there too. You'll pay more attention to people. You you start thinking about different ways to use your time that probably are more biblical, anyways. Um, I think our culture secretly believes that all books are good because you're reading. Not all books are good. There are some books that sow seeds of lust in your heart. Stay away from those. Stay away from those. Uh, we've reused the resource. I don't, I can't tell you who made it and I can't vouch for their existence, but common sense media is made for parents to, to like review resources that might create problems for their kids. But it's great if you want to seek a life of purity because you can just type in a book or a movie and it'll, and a, or a video game for that matter. And it'll just tell you what is in it that might give you stumbling blocks if you're fighting impurity in your heart. Um, it's a great resource. Just look, look up things. Uh, it's not too, too far out of your way. Um, outside of the Christian sources of, uh, of song, outside of Christian artists, um, most music is about sex. Um, like a lot of the music that you like, if you like country or if you like rock or if you like hip-hop, there are very few genres that aren't just talking about sex in some way or another in varying degrees of explicitness. It's just maybe time to turn your radio to Christian music. Um you have the advantage of fulfilling the call of Colossians 3, where we should, we should always be singing songs and, and hymns and spiritual songs to one another because it's perpetually reminding us of our hope. Okay, so, phone contacts. I hesitate to say this because I've seen people abuse it in the past. I'm, I'm speaking personally um, When I was single, there were people that I had to say, I can't talk to you anymore. Please don't talk to me anymore. Now, yes, the scriptures say much about proclaiming the gospel in dark situations. But if that relationship has taken a tone of impurity, I would no more tell you to keep that relationship up than I would tell an alcoholic to go share the gospel at the liquor store. You know what I mean? So there may be people that you have to cut off. A good way to make that decision is to bring your mature brothers and sisters to that conversation. And then finally, free time. Uh, specifically with pornography, um, but also with a whole bunch of other sins, Um, free time is the arena within which sin happens. Uh, There's a cool thing about free time, and that is that you can choose not to take it. You want to do something productive with your time in order to help you cut off access and to help you cut off any provision for your flesh, Give us a call. There's 90 million things to do to serve people and we only had a body of about a couple hundred people. Serve. Pour yourself out. Go start a Bible study. Uh, Pray with people at Starbucks. Um, Just just kill your free time. Kill it uh, for a season. And all of this is for a season. There is no such thing in the life of a believer of an unending battle against sin. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. We have been given everything we need for life and godliness. If you're willing to lose anything good for Christ, what you receive in return is exponentially better. All right, I say these three things in conjunction to tell you: a season of fighting is only a season, and the Lord so works among His people that after one or two seasons of fighting, you look back and you see all the victory, you see all the slayed corpses of sin, you see all the 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 crushed idols in your background. And you realize Christ is more powerful than this world. And Christ's promises are better than this world. Okay? All right. That's all I've got. Brett, will you come and pray for us?